You are listening to audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church on the corner of Ebenezer Baptist and Pleasant Green Road. If you would like to learn more about our church, please go to ebcconnect.org. Now, here's our pastor with this week's sermon. Be okay. He just said, follow. And that's kind of the idea when, when you go in to serve in the military, isn't it? You, you walk into it and you go, I really don't know what this is going to look like. Um, I mean, we've got, you've got basic training and, and all that. So you sort of know when I go the, that, that I'm just going to walk into this thing and, and they're going to kind of work on me for a little while. And that, that may be a mild way to put it, but, but that's going to happen. So you kind of know that, but you really don't know what's going to happen internationally or even nationally that would require you to step beyond just being in a position of serving and it just be a peacetime position as opposed to a wartime position. To be in the middle of battle and what, what does that look like? And really saying up front, yeah, I'll go and not knowing what following or going into that is going to look like. Um, I want to show you some pictures this morning because, and, and before we put those up, I'm going to, I want to ask the question, what really is the message of Memorial Day or Decoration Day as it used to be called. What's the message? It's essentially, it's the unofficial start to summer, right? It's where, it's where we have this weekend where everybody goes, this is a great lake weekend. I think I'll just go there. And I'm glad that you guys are here this morning. So, so we can kind of pick on those that, that headed to the lake, I guess, if, if we wanted to. But, but it's, a, it's the unofficial start to summer, but it's much bigger than that. Officially, it was recognized as a federal holiday in 1971. And I didn't realize it was so late. But it was recognized as an official federal holiday in 1971. But the roots of Memorial Day or Decoration Day reach all the way back to, to post-Civil War. Because it was, it was that time where it was recognized that people gave their lives for this country and we were going to mark their graves. And in, in the wake of losing 620,000 people, 620,000 soldiers during the Civil War, realize that's a really large number. We see the news now and we get into the skirmishes and, and we make a, a big deal. And I'm not saying it's not a big deal. So please don't hear this incorrectly. But when we lose four, five, eight, 10, 15 people, we say, man, that is a heavy loss when you put that against 620,000. It just kind of takes your breath away to realize there were 620,000 men, sons, dads that gave their life for, for causes where we were fighting each other. That's crazy. And then you can throw in all the wars that took place where, where we sent men and women to fight on behalf of this nation in other places and, and realize that the number just starts to grow. And people have lost their lives because of that. And we get to come into this place and, and the air condition is just about right today. And, and I don't know, um, some of you sit in the same seats all the time, so, so you know that your seat is just right today. Some of you have switched seats, and you're going, oh, this just doesn't feel right. Let me, 
Maybe I need to move over here and, and kind of wiggle into your spot. But we get to enjoy this. We get to come together and worship, worship our God in freedom. I mean, there's, there's, we, don't, we don't have to worry about really, and I'm not too concerned about whether there's nobody peering in the windows to see if we're doing this. We get to experience the freedom. I want to show you some pictures at this point because Memorial Day needs to have some images in our mind of what the costs are. And so, so Vaughn, if you would throw those up, this is Gettysburg. And you see there in the bottom right, it was a, it was a North Carolina memorial. This is part of Arlington. Arlington National Cemetery. You recognize that, don't you? Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Guarded. This last one. I've told you about the last one before. Just let it soak in. The last one was one of my students at Arlington. Memorial Day holds more meaning than the, unof than the unofficial start of summer. Memorial Day means freedom. Memorial Day means cost, and it's a heart message about and from those that have given their lives for this nation and our freedom. And so it's a reminder of the cost. It's a reminder of the cost for us to do what we do. If we continue in this thought pattern, we have to ask ourselves, what is the cost of true freedom? And see, we can talk about national freedom, and national freedom is good. We enjoy that. But there's a different kind of freedom that we're going to talk about this morning. Because although national freedom can come and go, and, and we've really in our lifetime not thought a whole lot about, uh, we've thought about national freedom, but not in the sense that our national freedom could disappear like that. You know, you can go to another country and experience what it is like to live on the edge of whether you're going to have national freedom or not have that. But even in those countries, and, and really internationally, regardless of whether there's national freedom or not, the, the real true freedom that we have is in Christ. Because it's, a, it's an eternal, it's an everlasting freedom that goes beyond just what we experience in our day-to-day. You see, true freedom means that, that I'm no longer subject to the penalty of my sin, and that only occurred because I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. And so I'm not subject to that. So although Scripture says that it is appointed for man once to die, and then comes the judgment, I walk into that and I say, I understand that because Jesus Christ died for me and I trusted Him as my Savior, Back in 1980, when I did that, that penalty that was due for me up to that point 
It's no longer my penalty to take on. Jesus has taken that on on the cross of, on the cross of Calvary. And so I've experienced true freedom in the sense of eternal life and, and what that means. You know, I was reading um, a tweet, um, part of Twitter, and there was this statement, and I, and I read it, and, and I read it in kind of in the context of what we're talking about this morning. And, and I want to read the statement, and then I just kind of want to tell you what I thought of it. Uh, the statement is this. Another pet peeve, now this is, well, if I, if I said the name, you would probably know the name by association. Another pet peeve is when pastors preach that Christianity is about faith, not works. But then they unroll a scroll chock full of do's and don'ts that you must follow to be right with God, in quotes, and remain in good standing with the community. So as, I, as I read that, I sat there, and at one point, I was like, yeah, I just want to kind of get a megaphone and say, yeah, that's right. And at the same time, I wanted to grab up a bushel of, of rotten tomatoes and say, hey, where is your cranium? Where, how, how can I aim these? Because there, there were just parts of that that I went, yeah, I agree. And there were other parts that I said, no, I don't agree with that at all. And, and really, you could go through that and say, Somewhere in the middle is where I'd probably land, and, it, and it's, a, it's a tension because we realize that, that works and faith are connected. They're connected. James reminds us they're connected. The faith without works is dead, isn't it? But our works don't, don't gain us eternal life. We don't earn our way. It's, it doesn't work like that. Uh, Martin Luther was one of those guys that, that stood up against the um, papal um, control, if you will, and the theology of Ro Roman Catholicism. And he, and he made this statement. He says, For it is certain that false teachers and false prophets will arise wherever the word is preached. And so he makes that statement in light of understanding true grace. And so he kind of called them out. And we'll, we'll read another quote of his in a minute. And we realize as we start looking and we continue to look at living grace in this letter from Paul to Titus, that he was talking about the organization of the church, but also the church as an organism. You remember, we've talked about that. And he set up some things talking about the qualifications of elders or overseers. And today what we're doing is we're moving into the next section because we just finished this section on elders and overseers and he, can, and he tells them and instructs them that they are to be men of sound doctrine that can refute these ideas that are false within the church, but also be able to have conversation with those outside the walls of the church about those same doctrines. So Paul writes this letter and as we talk about freedom, we understand that at all times, the freedom that we have and this, this tension between works and faith exists within the church, and it's always being pulled on from one side or the other. You know, we'll have seasons where we'll say, you know, it's all about faith and seasons. It's all about doing. But there is a tension that exists for us. When we start thinking about faith without works is dead, we start going through that. 
This is, this is what Luther said again in this. He says, I notice there is no work so bad that it will necessarily condemn a man, nor none so good that it will save him. But faith alone saves us, and unbelief alone condemns us. Jesus spoke to this whole idea of tradition or rules or law, and he kind of put it in perspective to help us understand what in the world we're supposed to do with this idea of faith and works. And Jesus was having a conversation with the Pharisees, and it was a situation where Jesus was being challenged by guys who had written some things trying to explain the law. And as they wrote it, and as they said, this is what you need to follow, he said, here are the guidelines that God gives. But so that you understand these guidelines, we're going to write all these things, and we're going to add to it. And, and as you look at these things, and this is where the, it kind of went a little haywire, it got skewed, is in looking at these things, understand these have as much weight as these. And Jesus is saying, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You've added to the law that God gave or the commands that God gave, you've added to it all these things and you've given it just as much weight. And Jesus is saying, you can't do that. You can't give weight to what man has put in place, even over above what God has put in place. And so Jesus said this, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. Well, he goes on to explain that a little bit further in Mark chapter 7. That was Mark 7, 8. Mark 7, starting in verse 18, says this, And he said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into a man from outside cannot defile him, but it does not, but it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated? Now, Jesus is getting kind of graphic here. This is where you don't need more explanation. Thus, he declared all foods clean. And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, for from within, out of the heart of men proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Missing anything? All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. So, so what, what is the conclusion if we look at this? God gives commands. The Pharisees took and they said, here's some things that explain it, but they made this weighty. And Jesus says, don't make this weighty, but understand that this law that was given was given so that we would understand what it is to be separated from God and would draw us to, to Him so that we would understand what's, what trusting Christ by faith and receiving the grace of God, what that would look like. And so the law was given to give us a picture of how bad we are. Yeah, I don't really need to, to have a... To, for somebody to tell me how bad I am necessarily. I can go look in the mirror. The problem is that some of us look in the mirror and as soon as we walk away, and I think this is in Scripture as well, is that we walk away for we forget. We think, oh, I'm, I'm doing okay. Now, now, 
you know, I've, I've talked about Becca over the last couple of weeks. She was not here to defend herself. Let me um, just go ahead and t- Stephen's here, and he is here to defend himself, but we didn't have to teach him how to sin. He did, he did quite well just on his own. And I'm guessing he still can do that. I'm just not around him as much to see all of it, but Rachel would testify. And so, um, yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. So, so we don't have to learn that. That's, that's something that's inherent in our nature. And the law was to help us understand, helps us to get a picture of who we are and why we need Christ. And Jesus in this passage is, is saying, look at the inside. How is the inside? Because the inside is where it starts. And what, what is happening on the inside is what comes out. When squeezed, that which is on the inside comes out. Yeah, that's the way it works, doesn't it? It's kind of like that with oranges or lemons or, or limes or anything. You squeeze it, what comes out? What's on the inside? And so Jesus is saying holiness starts with the inner man. And when Paul writes to Titus, the existence of pro- false prophets exists within the church and around the church, and they were distracting the church. It was causing issues. And what Paul is trying to clarify in this is that there are some things that we need to account for and we need to guard. And so the elders, the overseers are there to guard that. But Titus, even in this passage, he's going to give Titus some directive to step in as a leader and say, hey, here's the truth and you need to step in with some authority. And so I want us to read Titus chapter 1, and, and the idea here is that we're going to talk about what true freedom is. And, and really, if you could put a subtitle on this message and what we're going to talk about, it's, it's essentially overcoming, overcoming functional idolatry. And so you, you may have to think about that for a little bit, but, but let's, let's go ahead and read in Titus chapter 1. Would you stand as we read this together, starting at verse 10? Titus chapter 1, starting at verse 10. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families. And, and this whole families, it could have been biological, but more likely it, were the, it was the house churches that were spread over the island of Crete. Upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in faith. Not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Let's pray together. Father, we come before You, and Father, we read Words like this in Paul's letter. 
And, and Father, we recognize that in that day, they were still trying to guard doctrine and, and sound doctrine and, and guard what it meant to follow Christ. And Father, the, the realization is that we're no different. That we struggle with that even as we have your word. God, there are things that come to mind when we start looking at it that we, we push back against. And so, Father, as we look at this passage, Father, help us to have a, a mind that is clearly thinking and ears that clearly hear, a heart that is soft to you. Father, may we hear your voice above every voice that you as the good shepherd teach us that you would be honored by what takes place in this church and what takes place as a result of this body of believers. And God, we just we thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul's testimony and for his passion. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So we've got two things that we're going to talk about this morning, two big things in light of this passage. The first one is that we must acknowledge the battle for the mind. We must acknowledge the battle for the mind. Um, there is a battle for the mind of you. You realize that. I mean, it doesn't take too long before anything that you think of will get challenged in one form or another. Uh, whether it's in the news or you listen to a sermon or something like that, you could say, I have these ideas and everything I think about gets challenged in one way or another. If we talked about homosexuality and we kind of put that on the table, there would be varying degrees of what we would think about that even within this room. And the same would be true about, about pro-life and pro-choice and, and all kinds of different things. And, and there would be a just a variance in this room because we think, and yet we're being told, even from those that would be far, far left of what Scripture would say, we get told by them, hey, this is truth. So there's always a battle for the mind, and it was taking place in Paul's day as well. And we have to understand that when we start talking about spiritual matters, there are ways to, for us to understand. In fact, you are limited in what you understand depending on how your relationship with God is going. And you may say, I don't know if I understand that. Let me, let me just read this passage out of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. It says, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Now I want to be very careful here. This is, this is not a proof text for saying, hey, you have a seminary degree, so therefore you understand something better than anybody else. That's not what this means. It is not based on some schooling that took place. It is actually what the Holy Spirit teaches. And we have to be really careful. Was that not the argument that, that Martin Luther had to deal with with Roman Catholicism? 
is there was this hierarchy, and they said, everything that you know about God needs to come through this filter of men. Not true. We read this, and, and it really just says that those who are spiritually adapted to what God is saying can, can easily see what Scripture says. And, and understand that Scripture is hard sometimes to understand. I was in a conversation earlier today, and we were talking about educated versus uneducated. And it, and it seems as though those that are the most highly educated folks have the most difficulty with Scripture. Because there is a degree at which, that when you look at Scripture, that that which is in Scripture is foolishness. How in the world can my sin be placed on a man that lived that died on a cross 2,000 years ago, how can my sin be placed on him and that be okay for me going forward? How does that work? I don't understand. It doesn't make sense. Of course it doesn't make sense. There are a lot of things in Scripture when you read it that are not going to make sense apart from faith in Christ and the teaching and leading of the Holy Spirit. The mind is a battlefield and we need to know what's what's in the struggle or this ongoing struggle. And so if we just consider it a battlefield for a minute, there's some things that we need to know. We need to know the opposition. In any battle, you need to know who or what you're fighting against. But it's also good to know what you're fighting for. When we talk about national freedom, we know that we're fighting against an enemy, and it was a whole lot easier to define that in the past than it is now. And the same is true about what we're fighting for. We fight as a nation for freedom. And we want people to have freedom. But even that is, takes on some different, some different skews, if you will, as we look at that and we're talking about national freedom. But when we talk about Scripture, we're talking about understanding who the opposition is. The opposition is Satan. Fighting, fighting a war and knowing who you're fighting against. So we must know the opposition. In my yard, there are some things that are back in my yard that, that I don't like. Now, we live on the edge of some woods. Yesterday, and, it, and I'm not really against this dude, but, but yesterday, this, we looked over on the side of the driveway, and there's this big turtle. I mean, he was... He was big. No, he was, it was kind of like some of your fish stories. You know, he was, he was, you know, he was a pretty good sized turtle. And so, um, so we sent Stephen to, to go mess with him. And so Stephen's over there messing with him and he was going to pick him up. And, you know, for a little while, it's like, he's a snapping turtle. No, he's not. You know, he wasn't doing anything. And so Stephen went over there and, and started to pick him up from behind. And, and yeah, the thing, thing went after him. Oh, yeah, he's a snapping turtle. So, um, so he went over there, but, but that's not the biggest pest I've got in my yard. My, the biggest pests in our yard are really, really small. And the only way to fight them is, is with some things, and, and I've got to know who the opposition is. And so I've, I've got some things, some sprays and some, some different things, some aerosols that are back there to keep pests out. And I don't know how much of it works, but, but you're kind of trusting those that develop those things to say, you know what you're talking about, so I'm going to go ahead and buy it. And I'll give it a shot and see if it'll take care of it. 
Well, we're talking about spiritual things. We have to understand that there are some pests that we want to guard against. And so we've got to know the opposition. We've got to know that Satan is working even through what Titus, what Titus hears are false prophets to create a disturbance. And so we have to know what that disturbance is. And so what, what Paul writes, he says, there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families and teaching things that are not right. And the idea here is they were teaching things that went along with adding to the grace of God, saying this is what's required, and it's above and beyond just trusting Christ by faith for your salvation. It means doing these things. The second, the part of that was just being an adherent to Jewish tradition. They're rebellious men. They're not subject to authority is what that would talk about. There are many rebellious men. And the, the issue there is just falling under the authority of Christ. Is they weren't falling under the authority. Now, let me just kind of do a side note here. If you have a hard time falling under the authority that God has placed over you in any particular position. Like for, and I'm a, Don, I hate to keep using, I hate to use you, but I kind of call you out. You're here and I'm glad that you're here. And, uh, but here, here's, here's the problem. If I have a hard time falling under the authority of Don as a state trooper, then I'm definitely going to have a hard time falling under the, falling under the authority of God. Because God has placed him in the authority that he is. Parents are the authority in the home. But if you're a student or a child and you say, I'm not going to listen to my parents, then you're going to have a really hard time listening to God. And so you're, you're charged with falling under this authority. And what Paul is writing to Titus is there are many rebellious men saying they're not under authority. They're not acting like they're under authority. And they're empty talkers and deceivers. Um, that, that word really means to be seduced or to seduce in here. It's, it's the idea that their deceptions are creating an issue within family or house churches and they're seducing people into believing what they say is correct. Is they're leading them down this path. And the, the idea in this passage is that they're using feelings to do that. Well, you know our feelings can betray us, right? Our feelings can mess with us. Those of you that are a little bit older, you know that at some point in your dating relationships, that your feelings may have deceived you you say well I was in this relationship and it didn't work out the way I wanted to but you were head over heels within the first three days right I want to marry that girl I want to marry that guy and then three weeks later you're going I don't want to have anything to do with them but if you went back to the first part of that you say my feelings were correct and you get three weeks removed from that and you go my feelings were messing with me and what these deceivers were doing, these rebellious men were doing, they were playing on the feelings of, of these people in these house churches. They're saying, well, obviously trusting Christ is one thing, but don't you think you need to earn it? Or don't you think you deserve something different than that? And so they play on their feelings. Well, yeah, of 
course I've got to earn it. That's the only way you get anything. There's nothing free. You've heard that argument. Paul's saying it's different. You're being deceived. You're being lured in. We'd go on vacation. We would go crabbing and we took a piece of chicken, put it on a string, and we'd lure that dude in. And it didn't take very long where we had a whole bucket of crab. Well, he wasn't getting any chicken. We were just luring him in so we'd get a net on him. And that's exactly what these guys were doing. They were luring them in and, and bringing them in to understand something that was false. And the, the thing that we must know is that there's the supply line there is, is Satan. Second thing is we must reprove the opposition. It says here that, that you're supposed to silence these guys who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things that they should not teach for the sake of gain, sordid gain. And that word silence means to put a muzzle on. It would be the, the, the way we look at that, we say, we just want to kind of put a piece of duct tape over their mouth and keep them quiet. And obviously you can't do that. And, and I'm sure that's not what Paul had in mind when he wrote this. But he said in here that they should be silenced and, and they are creating issues. And so Paul says to Titus, reprove them severely. That word reprove means to just come down on them hard. Come down severely on them. It was, it was the same thing that he did to the, with the Corinthian church in kind of pulling the apostle card. This is who I am, and I have authority, and so I'm coming down on you with this authority and understand, and I don't like pulling this out, but you have to understand how serious this issue is. And I would say that even within the, 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 the idea of church discipline, we have to understand that's part of the landscape of guarding the doctrine of a church, to guarding biblical truth. As we come at this, and sometimes it has to be, it has to be a little tough. Notice the result of this, uh, that in, in all this, uh, for this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith. This is not an idea of we're going to reprove you so we can kick you out. This is reproof for, for the idea of restoration and right teaching. It's the idea of taking something like penetrating oil to get down in and to get into the, the grime and grit so we can loosen something up so that it can be lubricated to function the way it's supposed to function. So we acknowledge the battle for the mind with the goal of sound in faith. The second thing is we address the war for your heart. We have to address the war for your heart. And we do that by viewing grace correctly. Essentially, grace is not the license to do whatever you want to do. You don't get that. Romans 6, 14 and 15 says, For sin shall not be the master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are under law, but, or not under law, but under grace? And essentially what Paul is writing here is he says, because grace has been applied to you, do you sin more? Does that just give me license to do whatever I want to do? Like the list was only this long before, but now that I'm under grace, I can do this many things. 
And Paul says it, it should not be. He says, to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. Remember what Jesus said, that purity starts from the inside. It's evidenced in the heart of man. And then it comes out in righteous living. Grace comes through a faith relationship with God. Purity starts on the inside. We have to allow God to do His refining work. And so we accept the grace of God through faith, that that mercy that we receive. But then we don't take it for granted or we don't take it for license. When we talk about Memorial Day, our freedom has a responsibility attached to it. Isaiah 29, 13 through 16 says this, Then the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists of traditions learned by rote. Therefore, behold, I will once again deal marvelously with this people, wondrously marvelous. And I'm pretty sure that's not a good kind of marvelous. And the wisdom of their wise men will perish. And the discernment of their discerning men will be concealed. Woe to those who deeply hide their plans from the Lord. And whose deeds are done in a dark place. And they say, who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things around. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? And what is made would say to its maker, he did not make me. Or what is formed, say to him who formed it, he has no understanding. See, it's not our right. We don't have license to tell God what to do. We should be sensitive in our hearing what God wants us to do and understand that God should have access to all of us. And so although we receive the grace of God through faith in Christ... It does not give us license to do whatever we want to do. It gives us license to love Him with a passion that comes because God is worthy of not just praise, but He's worthy of our love. In Mark 7, when Jesus wrote that, for from within, out of the heart of men, comes all these different things. What would you want the list to be when it's talking about your heart? Second thing is we view grace consistently. So the question comes is why do we add things to this idea of grace? Why do we add rules and regulations? Maybe it's pride. That our, what we set our mind to can be accomplished. And so we say, okay, if pride is the issue, maybe I need to step up and And even though I've accepted the grace of God, I still need to earn my way so I'll feel better about myself if I add to this thing called grace. Maybe it's greed. I want what I want. And my heart is mine to control. Or idolatry. And this is where the functional idolatry comes. It's from ultimately receiving glory for what God alone is worthy of. You know, if I can earn it for me, then I can turn around and say, hey, good job, me. Right? 
So if you can earn, if you can earn salvation, you deserve a pat on the back. But you don't earn it. It's given to us by God as a gift. I've got four volunteers that are going to help me this morning. So I need them to come up real quick right now. And so we're going to, I want to show you something in this. We're going, to, we're going to play. Hurry up. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Hurry, run. I know you're not supposed to run in church, but right now, run. You're doing it. You got it. All right, so who's on what team? All right, you, you. Everybody wants Mason. Okay, I tell you what, you guys, you get on this team because you guys are like wearing the same uniform. Y'all go over that side. Take that, take that rope. Take that side. Good. Oh, sorry. All right, um, I'm not going to jump rope, but you guys need to move out just a bit. Okay, so, so if... Let's bring this right here. So we'll get this right in the middle. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move this table for a second. It's probably not going to be far enough. Let me put this over here. And so if we look at this and we do a tug of war between these guys, how many of you think that this team will win? All right. Hey, they're betting on you. No, they're not betting because this is church. How many of y'all think would, how many of you think this team would win? It's kind of a split decision in this place. These, they're not real, um, I, don't, I don't know that anybody's really convinced. So, so here's what we need to do. You guys move a little closer. Let some of that rope hang off the end. You guys come a little closer and let some of that rope hang off behind you. So come on in here, get a good grip. You got a good grip? All right, so let's, let's move this to the middle. So you guys back up a little bit. Let's move you in. All right, so would you guys, would you guys do a little tug of war? Would you tighten, tighten it up? Let's do a little tug. You ready? You ready? When I say go, you're going you're gonna to pull a little bit? All right, go. Okay, you're not looking like you're pulling much. You pull, you pull a little bit more? Come on, come on, pull a little bit. All right, no, go, go easy. All right, all right. Stop right there. Stop right there. Okay, just hold it right there. Don't move it. And so we start talking about grace and works and faith and, and how, that, how that goes. If, if we pull and tug on this part and say, we say works is not important, so we kind of take works out of the equation. We take it completely out. All right, so we take works completely out of the equation. We say, oh, it's, it's not important. It's not important what we do. What does that do? That gives us license to do whatever we want, right? But if we go to this side and we say, you've got to do all these things for grace to be applied. You guys are, you guys, you're still working hard. Don't work so hard. Just, just hang on. We'll, we'll check this out in a minute. So if we, if we come over here, we say, we've got to add all these things to what it means to trust Christ as Savior. Neither one of those is a good position for us to be in. Okay, all right. Time out. Somebody, somebody blow a whistle. That's pretty good. Okay, all right. Drop the rope. Drop it, drop it. Drop it. Yeah, good. Okay, good. Thank you. Thanks. 
Thanks, guys. So if, if we're in this tension that exists between faith and works, we have to understand that our faith in trusting Christ is big, but we don't need to allow it to affect us to where we don't live out the, the passion that comes because we're following Christ. And what, what Paul was telling Titus, he's saying, look, they can't teach that, that there's more than what God's given through grace and mercy. They can't teach that because their, their salvation is based on the grace and mercy of God. However, they do need to live out like they belong to Christ. You can't have one, one way or the other. It's a both and, and it's in the middle. There's a tension that exists there. This is the way Charles Finney wrote wrote about this. He said, those who are always ready to ask how little they may do from religion rather than asking how much they may do are serving their own gods. Say, so how, how little must, can I do to still be saved? And Finney would say, you can't ask that question. What you're asking for is how much of salvation depends on you. Jonathan Edwards wrote this. He says, now those that will not depend on this free grace, they do not. They do what they can to deprive the gospel of this glory. And sully the glory of God therein shining forth. They take away the praise, glory, and honor that is due to God by his free grace and mercy to men and set up themselves as the objects of it, as if their salvation, at least partly, was owing to what they have done. You see, the danger in going either direction and staying far to the sides in either direction is to cheapen the grace of God. It's either saying, I've got this bucket full of grace and it's full, but for me to add or subtract to that means that I have to empty it out and put something that I put into it. And so you make that not as worthy as what it is. You see, God has done an amazing, glorious work in those that have trusted Christ. And we have to ask the question, have we trusted Him? And are we living out our passion because of what God has done in us? Are we being true to His Word? And so as we wrap up, we must know what the true cost of freedom is. And so how do, we, how do we know about that? Well, we know that the grace of God is enough to save and secure. Second thing is the fruit or the result of that grace in our lives is passionate living for God's glory alone. And so let me ask these questions. Wayne's going to come. And here's, here are the questions. Have you in practice cheapened the grace of God? Have you in practice cheapened the grace of God? Functional idolatry. You say, I didn't do that. Or, you know, when I think about this, I really didn't mean to. I'm not telling you that, that it was an intentional desire of yours to take glory away from God. What I'm saying is that, that we so easily pull that rope one way or the other and we cheapen what God has done. 
And we have to repent of that and, and say, God, would you forgive me for cheapening your grace? Second question, have you received the grace of God by placing your faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation? Psalm 18, 2, and this is a, a psalm when, when he writes this, he understands who he's trusting for his salvation. He wrote, David wrote, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. In this declaration, what we see is that it was very personal to David. And so the second question about whether it's functional idolatry on one side, the other part of this is, have you trusted Christ as your Savior? Have you made that decision? And it's, it's fairly simple to do, but we'd love to explain it to you. The third question this morning, is God leading you to join this fellowship? Is he leading you to become part of the family of Ebenezer? And I would encourage you, if you've not done that, but God's been kind of laying it on your heart to be part of this family, then I would encourage you to, to make that decision. Thank you for listening to this audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church. We welcome you to join us next Sunday at 1030 a.m. for our weekly worship service. If you have found this resource helpful, please do share it with others and check out our other ministries at ebcconnect.org.